And so when our Chinese customers come asking for millet, I watch them with tenderness, following their movements. I miss you, and I do not even know you, I want to say to the miner, the launderer, the servant. Hello and welcome to The Right Question, a radio program and podcast featuring authors from the American West and beyond. Our funding comes from Humanities Montana and members of Montana Public Radio, and from the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. I'm Lauren Korn, speaking with novelist Jenny Tinghui Zhang, author of Four Treasures of the Sky, the heartbreaking story of young Dai Yu, kidnapped from Zhifu, China in 1882. From the freedom of her parents' house and her grandmother's flourishing garden, to the streets of Zhifu and the saving grace of a modest calligraphy school, small Dai Yu is taken to America, first to a California brothel and then to a small market in Idaho. In an era defined by anti-Chinese sentiment, Four Treasures of the Sky is a harrowing reminder of what this country was and is still capable of. Jenny, welcome to The Right Question. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. I want to say right off the bat that I absolutely loved this book. I feel like it has such an important historical foundation, and it's one that should be really front of mind right now. With that said, I want to ask you about the impetus for the story, which began, as you write in your author's note at the end of the book, uh, with sort of a strange request from your dad. Can you tell our listeners about that request and how Four Treasures of the Sky grew from it? Yes, and I hope my father is going to be listening to this so that he can he can be happy with this answer. Um, so my dad in 2014 was driving through the Pacific Northwest for work. His work kind of takes him all along these rural paths, unknown places in the United States. And he was driving through Idaho, passing a town called Pierce, Idaho, when he saw this historical marker on the side of the road. And it caught his attention because I think it said something like Chinese hanging tree on the sign, or it had the word Chinese on it. And my father stopped in the middle of the road at night in this rural place, got out to inspect this marker. And this marker detailed an event that took place in 1885 where five Chinese men were hanged by white vigilantes for the alleged murder of a white local store owner. And my dad thought, what were Chinese people doing in Idaho in 1885? So he brought that story and that curiosity back to Texas with him and told it to me because he knows I'm a writer and this is what he assumes all writers must do. He told me the story and he asked me if I could write out the entire story of what happened for him. What were Chinese people doing in Idaho at the time? What happened with this hanging? Who were these white vigilantes? Was there really a murder? All of these questions. So I took this story, didn't think anything of it because my dad has so many outlandish ideas that he always brings to me and asks if I can turn them into stories. Um, 
And it wasn't until the last year of my MFA program when I was in a long form writing workshop, which was basically a novel writing workshop with Alison Hagee that I remembered this story my dad told me. And it was kind of the only novel length project that seemed interesting to me at the time, maybe because I was living in Wyoming at the time and Idaho felt close, closer than it had when I was living in Texas. So that's the origin of this story. I wrote it to appease my dad's curiosities. (laughs) That's so interesting. And it obviously grew towards that idea, but also far away from that idea. It includes that story, but also includes so much more. Yes. Originally, my plan was just to to explore and center the story around this event that happened. And I had these grand aspirations of um, doing something similar to the Poisonwood Bible, where there are five characters and each character gets their own storyline and their own chapters. And so I actually started with one of the characters who appears in this book, Nelson, Nelson Wong. The book started with him, actually. And it wasn't until I was doing more research around how were people getting from China to America during this time when it was quite difficult to get into the country if you were Chinese. I found this research article that detailed how they were shipping Chinese girls and women across the ocean in buckets of coal or stuffed in crates of China. And that's how they were getting across. And it was that image of a girl stuffed in a bucket of coal, which I couldn't even imagine how one could be small enough to be in that space, much less like be surrounded by coal for three to four weeks. That's where the character of Dai Yu emerged. And the story kind of took off from her. And I Nelson just faded into the background for a while because all of a sudden this book was her book. And that scene or that segment of the book when Dayu is stuffed into this coal bucket, it's so striking and tragic. Like you said, you can't imagine someone so small to fit into a bucket. It's such a tragic story. And I guess to give listeners a bit of context, your novel takes place in the late 1800s when the U.S. passed what was known then and I guess now too as the Page Act and then the Exclusion Act and both prohibited Chinese immigration into the U.S. Um, The Page Act prohibited women, Chinese women from coming into the country and then the Exclusion Act prohibited everyone. It it basically paused Chinese immigration into the country for 10 years. I'm wondering how strictly you felt you had to adhere to the factual elements of both American and Chinese histories. And when did you feel the need to deviate or take liberties with what is known to be fact? And I guess I should put fact in, you know, scare quotes, you know, because so much of American history is not what's true, what actually happened. So yeah, I'm wondering how you felt about that adherence to um, known history. And and when did you feel the need to keep those stories and experiences? When did you feel the need to deviate? 
Mm -hmm. That's a great question. I actually felt a great deal of pressure and anxiety around making sure everything was as historically accurate as possible because I realized this novel is purporting to, you know, shed light on an area of American history that hasn't really been publicized as much as the dominant narrative. And so I did a lot of research while writing this book. I read so many books. I was on JSTOR just reading every single research article, every single scholarly article, newspaper clippings, looking at maps, looking at the train passageways, um, uh, the railroads, everything I could to just feel confident that what I was putting down onto paper could be corroborated in some way. At a certain point, though, I think fear of being as accurate as possible can also be crippling. And when you're writing something that's fiction and you're trying to tell a story and trying to write a book, I think at a certain point you have to come to terms with the fact that One, you are never going to get it completely accurate. Two, it is a story, and so you are going to have to massage some aspects of it so that it is the story that you want to tell. But three, I also think there is a part of this question that is especially relevant for writers of color who are trying to write about their histories, where there, there aren't as many books around this topic. And so you kind of feel as if you are taking the mantle and this is the one chance and you have to get everything right. And so there's this added pressure of almost, am I, am I speaking well for my community? Am I doing right by my people? I think that's a larger issue of, um, publishing and and which stories are being published because there are so many stories about World War II that I don't think writers of World War II fiction are as feeling as if they have to represent their people to the utmost accuracy because there are already so many stories of that nature. But for me, at least, there was a point where I thought you are writing about a, a shared history, but you can't be the last one, and you're not going to be the only one. There are already several books that are talking about this. So let's just ease up a little and use the research that you have. You know you did good research, but also tell a good story. My next question for you is sort of bringing in this idea of representation, but also this idea of what you, you know, you, that you finished this first draft in the midst of a pandemic, you know, when anti-Chinese and anti-Asian sentiment like came back with a vengeance. And so it's kind of a broad question, but hopefully one that marries these two ideas. What was the emotional cost of writing this book for you? <laughs> I would say... In relation to the anti-Asian violence that was happening and and continues to happen um, as I was writing this book, it felt like I could do nothing else but write this story. And it was surreal because the things I was writing about, it's historical fiction, right? This, This book is 
categorized as historical fiction, but everything I was writing about was happening in front of my eyes in the news, in my, in my various social media feeds. And so the emotional cost, <laughs> it feels high, but it feels inevitable because history, as we're seeing right now with everything that's happening, history repeats itself. I think in writing this book, at least, there was a lot of despair, but there was also something empowering about knowing where you came from and understanding why things are the way they are. Because I've mentioned this in other interviews, but around the time when I think the Atlanta uh, spa shooting happened, a, a lot of friends reached out to me and they said, I'm so sorry this is happening, you know? And I remember thinking, well, it's not just happening. It's been happening. It's been happening since the first Asian person set foot in the United States. Um, it's one big giant ugly snowball um, that's just growing and growing. And it it has a lot of roots in the Chinese Exclusion Act. But as you mentioned as well, it goes back even further than that with the Page Act and court rulings. The I think it was People versus Hall case in 1854 that said that Chinese immigrants were not allowed to testify against white defendants. Um, so they could not seek justice for maybe their houses being ransacked or burned down. One of the scenes that was really interesting to me, but also like tugged at me so hard was this scene when Dayu is in Idaho. She's with Nelson and with William, this other Chinese man from California. And they're talking about resistance, basically. And Dayu basically is like, why would white people want to cause us harm? I don't understand that. Of course, they don't actually mean all of this. And William sort of scoffs and is like, what are you talking about? This is what they've been doing forever. It was just like a, such a strong moment to have this young person, Dayu, show her naivete, but also like her trusting nature, right? Like how could so many people be against us? They don't know us. I think I, I must have, um, you know, drawn some of that naivete from my own life. I don't know if America was called Meikua at the time, but at least now we, in Chinese, America translates to Meikua, which um, means beautiful country, but part of it is from like the America. So there's this sound, similar sound, which is why it's that way. But the way we refer to it is you know, beautiful country. So I came to the States when I was five. I was, you know, told it was beautiful. There were squirrels everywhere, which I didn't see in China. And that it was just, you know, the land of opportunity and wonderful things. So for me, at least as an immigrant, a young immigrant, I came with the expectation that things were going to be beautiful. And then you start experiencing racism where people tell you to go back to your country or they pull their eyes into slits or they tell you you have a flat face. And that idealism and the beauty of your surroundings and of this idea of, of the beautiful country starts getting chipped away at. And there's something really tragic about that, especially if you are a child. Um, and I, I think I wanted to give that experience to Dayu as well, because that is also a, a true experience. Mm -hmm. 
If you're just joining us, you're listening to a conversation with novelist Jenny Tinghui Zhang. I'm Lauren Korn. This is The Right Question. Our full conversation can be found online at mtpr.org, where you can also subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'd like to talk about beauty for a second, because there's a moment when Dayu is living and working in a San Francisco brothel, and she's looking in the mirror at herself, at her makeup and at her clothes, and she's thinking about Lin Dayu, a woman of a very old Chinese story, but she is named after, Dayu is named after this woman. And she thinks to herself while looking in this mirror, I am beginning to understand that tragedy makes things beautiful. And I'm wondering, Jenny, how did you think about the idea of beauty as you wrote this book, whether that be physical beauty, beauty through this lens of tragedy, beauty as something like a tone or a style of your writing even? I'm just wondering what role beauty played for you. Mm, That's a really good question. I've never been asked that before, and I don't know if I've ever even thought about it before. But I, I guess I can start with the Lindai portion. So Lindai is a character from this book called The Dream of the Red Chamber, Hong Lo Meng. And it's one of four extremely famous books in China. It's like a foundational text. If you were, were to talk to any Chinese person um, in China, at least, they would know it because they've probably studied it and it's just been passed down. So um, the character in that book that Dai Yu is named after is Lin Dai Yu. And in the book, she is very sensitive. She is sickly from a young age. She loses her parents when she's young. She seems to suffer from consumption. So she coughs a lot and her breathing is labored and, and sometimes she coughs up blood. But the tragedy of her life is that she falls in love with her cousin, Jia Baoyu. And spoilers for the end of Dream of the Red Chamber. But the man she falls in love with, her cousin, ends up marrying a different cousin. Not because he's in love with this other cousin, but because he thinks that the woman under the wedding veil is actually Lin Daiyu. So when she finds out that he's married someone else, it kicks off her death sequence. And she dies, I think, coughing up blood in her bed surrounded by her maids. And that's kind of the arc, the completion of Lin Daiyu. I think in Chinese literature and our understanding of it, we see Lin Daiyu as this tragic, beautiful figure, perhaps beautiful because of everything she endured. And I honestly don't know how to answer this question because I think when Dai Yu is thinking, you know, does tragedy make things beautiful? I think I, as as the writer, was also thinking or um, contesting these questions in my head of, can you write something great that's not tragic? I've heard people say it's really easy to write something that's sad. It's really hard to write something that's happy or write about happiness. So 
maybe this isn't quite the answer you're looking for, Lauren, but I think that particular moment that you're pointing out was a larger question for me as the author of like, what is the role of tragedy in art and in beauty? Will you read an excerpt from your novel? Um, I was hoping you could begin on page 148 and end on 150. Yes. The customers who still come are mostly Chinese. They were not born here, but traveled from Guangdong with hopes of gold and work, searching for money that they would one day bring back to their families. You remind me of my son, one of them tells me, tears filling his brown eyes. You remind me of everything, I want to reply. It is a childish truth. What he reminds me of is something I did not know could go missing. The feeling of being where you should be. There is a difference between being a newcomer to a city and being in a world that does not resemble you, that reminds you every moment of your strangeness. This is what Idaho is to me. The few white customers who do come into our store are furtive, quiet. They act as if they have done something wrong by being here. They never stay for long. Because they are so few, I give them their own names and stories. There is a woman who wears black and only buys ginger root. I call her a widow. There is a group of young schoolboys who stand outside the store shoving and laughing, each daring the other to come inside. The one who finally does, I call him a soldier. These customers are not enough to keep the store running forever, but Nam and Lum are not worried yet. They have a plan to bring in more white customers by matching the inventory at Foster's Goods. I am not worried either. What happens with the store, with the customers, with Nam and Lum is not important to me. The days pass by without touching me, as if I have been plucked out and removed and placed to watch from the side. I am the character for Lost. Me, a grain of rice walking nowhere. When I speak, my mouth moves, but I am far away. When I sweep, my hands feel ocean water, not the handle of a broom. My body may be here in Pierce, but my heart is searching for Jufu. Samuel lied. Idaho is not closer to China, because Idaho does not touch the ocean. Here, there are no ships that can carry me back home. There is only land, mountain, valley. Repeat. So much dirt and so much green. When, fresh from the violence with the gray-haired man, I asked the first person I saw if he could point me to the docks, he laughed in my face. And I realized then what I must have known this whole time. When Nam and Lum bicker about the store and bemoan the weather, I nod and murmur in agreement, letting that be speech enough. I am thinking of my mother, my father, my grandmother, of Master Wong and the calligraphy school. Up until the moment I arrived in Pierce and found the store, my life had been split in two, before the kidnapping and after. Now there is a third split, a new possibility, the return. This is where my happiness lies, and when the snow and the cold and the nightmares of my past threaten to crush me, I think of my future, the one where I get to see my family again, the one where I return to Master Wong's tutelage and grow into my own calligraphy master. In this future, I am whole and content and well. In this future, I am unified. That was beautiful. 
Um, and, you know, you mentioned earlier your conversation with Pam Zhang for the Adroit Journal for the Montana Book Festival. And I kind of want to return to that, just, you know, the ideas of sort of this Western space that Dayu is occupying. Yeah, I want to return to a question that I actually asked during this interview with you guys. It had to do with like this definition of the American West, and I'm, you know, scare quoting the American West, and whether we, as people who populate this region, should, you know, even dare try to characterize it or define it or try to place any sort of boundary on it. And so I guess I want to I want to think about that question because I think both you and Pam were both like it can be whatever we want it to be. But my question to you now is what is the American West to you? What does it mean to be in this place for you mythologically or creatively, geographically, you know, spatially? Yeah. I've been thinking about this question a lot just because when talking about the book with other people, they they kind of always reference it as a Western. And when I was writing this book, that was the last thing I was thinking about, you know, and I never set out to write a Western. But I think that's because my relationship with the West and the idea of the Western has always been non-existent. I was never interested in Westerns because I never really saw myself in them and never really felt represented by it and thus was not interested in it. But that has since changed because I went to the West for graduate school. I got my MFA in Wyoming and the landscape of Wyoming was incredibly important to me as I was developing as a writer. I think there was something about being forced to be in the world in Wyoming. And by the world, I mean literally like the mountains, the wind, the plains, the snow, the altitude, all of it. Um, but thinking about it now, when, when I question my resistance of lumping this book into the Western genre, for example, um, I think what's happening is... And, and I've seen people discuss this as well. There is a new kind of Western genre or canon maybe that's emerging. Um, when you look at books like Pam Jong's How Much of These Hills is Gold or Tom Lin's uh, The Thousand Crimes of Mintsu or Anna North's Outlawed, there are these books about the West and the time that are kind of recapturing the stories that were a part of the West. And, you know, people could say, oh, you're just making up new stories um, that never really happened. You're just kind of taking this genre and making it into something it's not. But I would say the stories that you see being told about the West now have always existed in the West. They've always been a part of the West, right? Chinese people have always been in the West. At a certain point, 30% of the population in Idaho was Chinese in, I think, about 1870, which is a lot compared to today, especially. So I guess what I'm trying to say is my experience with the West, at least, um, was previously so non-existent, but it was through the writing of this book that I realized that there was more to the West than 
the white man. And that has been the dominant narrative for so long. And as we start seeing this genre open up, I think we also start to see like our conceptions of it, both physically and spiritually, um, expand as well into what the West actually is. So I guess my my answer is kind of a non-answer in that I think it's still evolving as we continue to see the ways in which people tell their stories about the West. But I do think that's a good thing. Jenny, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for this conversation. These were really wonderful questions. You've been listening to The Right Question. The show is produced by Peter Hoag and me. I'm your host, Lauren Korn. Our recording engineer is Tom Barich. Our artwork was designed for The Right Question by Molly Russell, and our music was written and recorded by John Floridus. Funding for The Right Question is provided by the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. Many thanks to Humanities Montana for supporting this program since 2008. And thank you for listening. The Right Question is a production of Montana Public Radio.